thinking of popping the question? Diamonds Direct has an offer you can't miss. This month only, buy a natural diamond engagement ring of one carat plus and receive a free natural one carat diamond tennis bracelet valued at $2,000. Imagine giving her the ring of her dreams and her wedding gift all at once. No one provides education, selection, and value like Diamonds Direct. Your chance to get a free tennis bracelet from your friends at Diamonds Direct won't last long. Details at DiamondsDirect.com. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. This is your moment. Your time to shine. Your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hi, I'm so excited to be joined by Lokalani. She is, should be world famous, but locally famous in Nashville, Tennessee, you make incredible homemade ice cream that has deep-rooted history in every flavor. Yeah, it's it's wild. Yeah, some of the flavors don't, but most of them, yeah, there's some historic value in them. <laughs> so tell me how you decided to make ice cream. Tell me about, a little bit about you and your upbringing and how it led you to making ice cream. So I was born on the West Coast. I'm from California, born and raised, very proud to be Californian. Uh, I was born in the Bay Area and raised there in East Palo Alto, California. And then my parents moved to Central California, but I went to middle school and high school in Southern Oregon. So very West Coast, the laid back vibe, just, you know, we didn't, you wave to everyone. I don't even think we locked our front door. Like it was just very Oregonian, very Californian. Um, and then after high school, so I wanted to be an actress forever. My parents thought I was gonna be an actress. And then after high school, uh, I went to Europe to wow. do the Eurorail. That's when you would like send your kids over and they just ride a train for weeks on end. Did you uh, my gr- yeah, I had a backpack. I had like, it was nuts. I think we traveled for six weeks by ourselves. There's three wow. of us. And you were fresh. Yeah, it was amazing. Yeah, right out of high school. We, so my parents-, parents are like, you go girl, put your backpack oh, yeah. up. Were y'all staying in hostels and stuff? Yeah, hostels. We stayed in hotels. We stayed at people's houses. Yeah, so we flew into London, spent the night, because I have the funniest story about how I spent 200 pounds on a cab ride from Gatwick to Heathrow. It was like I didn't know anything. I, we were so, I had never been to Europe. I had never left the country before. Yeah, so, well, I mean, you're fresh out of high school. Oh, yeah, you don't know anything. You're like, ah, I think so. I, but nothing. So I remember I paid my 50 pounds. I was like, I have to go. This was a ripoff in this black cab. So we, yeah. um, because this is like twice the value of a dollar. Yes. And that was back in like, that was 99, 2000. So it was like $400 for a cab ride, basically. Basically. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh my God. So my dad, 
my dad, my stepfather, who's been my father for 30 million, like he's, that's my dad. His mom is Danish. And so she came to America um, when she was in her teens. Uh, and she's been here. She's raised a family here, had her children here. So she has ties in Denmark. So we were going from London to Denmark. So that was kind of our like spot was yeah. travel, come back to Denmark. Well, then I ended up staying for six months and that was my first kitchen job was in, yeah, was outside of Copenhagen in Svendborg. And so I learned a lot in this really cool place called Svenshus, which okay. means Sven's house. Um, and then I got home and I said, I want to cook. And my dad's like, that's a fish out of water. That doesn't make any sense. And so I met this woman that my mom knew who did these Italian cooking classes. She was a histor uh, art historian. She spoke Italian. She did these beautiful classes. And she had this amazing assistant, Annette, who was a, the most brilliant cook I've ever met. And they taught me all this stuff. And then she hired this guy. And I said, I want to go to culinary school. And he said, you should go to Necky, New England Culinary Institute, which again, East Coast had never been to. I California. California child, East Coast winter weather, no insulated jacket, no snow boots. <laughs> and I went to school in Vermont. Wow. So you went from California to hopping over to Europe, backpacking mm -hmm. with your brave self and friends for six weeks, kind of just like following your following wherever you wanted to go. I guess you had a place, oh, yeah. but like kind of just yeah. enjoying the scenery, enjoying Europe, taking it all in, learning as you go. And then you go to Vermont. I mean, you're so, look at you. You're so brave. It's, it's, it was nuts. Vermont was a uh, beautiful, I mean, it was, it's, it's beautiful. I don't know if you've been like Burlington, Essex, it's just Stowe. It's the most beautiful place. And I had a great education and then I got home. I did two internships, one in Oregon and then one in California. And the California one, I would eventually end up living in LA. So then I landed in LA for eight years. And that's when I ended up at uh, Grace Restaurant, which is owned by Amy and Neil Frazier, who own Redbird in Los Angeles. And uh, Elizabeth Belkin became my pastry mentor. She owns Cake Monkey in Los Angeles. And then I was working at Camp in Neale with Nancy Silverton and Dahlia Navarro. And like, it was a big, huge, like I had the most amazing I don't know. I had the best upbringing in the kitchen is what I tell everyone. Well, I don't really know who those people are, but I'm assuming they're like big wigs. Yeah. They're, they're like, they're badasses. Like, it's like, if I can say that, like, they're like, they're really amazing. Elizabeth's been my mentor for, I mean, everything I know is because of her. So, um, and then I just worked, I think my last job in LA was at Besso, Eva Longoria's place, wow. which was, it was a, big deal then and I was the pastry chef it was wild when I say wild like Tell just me some stories. I mean everybody came through there and it was just nuts 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 that's one of the craziest on. people that came through and a story that you can share no that I can't that one's not appropriate <laughs> anything's appropriate as long as you feel okay with it it's like it, it's just there. Let's just say like, just, I feel like name someone and they were there. It, it didn't, I think at one point it was like everyone, it, it was too much. It was too much. Cause you would walk out and you'd be like, is that who I think it is? And then it's just, people would come, they'd eat, have their tacos, their guacamole, their churros. Like it was just a wild time. New Year's Eve parties were insane. There was a club above 
So you had the restaurant and then there was the Besso Lounge that people were waiting in line in because we were off of Hollywood. So it was in the heart of Hollywood and it was just lines of people wanting to come in. And so there's just a lot of debauchery, a lot of like it, every night. It just is like every night there was a new thing. It just never, it never failed. There was something new. So what so. did you learn about humanity, celebrities, life in general, being in the hot spot of Hollywood with all of the A-listers? Like, what did you, what did you take away from those eight years? It's, what I took away, so there's a funny thing when you live in LA and you see celebrities a lot or you watch TV, right? Then you have a moment where you're looking at someone and you go, that person's really familiar, but I can't figure out why they're so familiar. Like, I feel like I know that person. And then you realize you're like, oh, wait, oh, it's so-and-so. They're famous. Like, it's just a, you know, I don't know. You learn to just live with it. It's not, it just starts to wear off after a while. You know, you'll be in an elevator with somebody or, you know, so-and-so's walking the dog and they want to pet your dog or you just learn to just interact and it doesn't have any effect unless you have a family member with you. Mm -hmm. And then it becomes like, you know, but you get to the point where in the restaurant, they come in and you feed them and then they ask questions like, what did you put in this? Or, oh, I love this, you know? So then you just realize they're just like everybody else. It doesn't, you know? Um, but yeah, it's been, oh, the what I, anytime I tell stories from the eight years I lived in LA, they sound so made up. And then my cousin's you always there to go, you one. There. You just tell me one wild story that you can share. I'm dying. <laughs> All right. I'll tell before we get off because I have to like comb through. There's just too many good ones. <laughs> I do tell the story of the night that we danced with Prince. I always tell that story. Okay. Let's hear it. We went to this club called Teddy's at the Roosevelt hotel. And like, it was get, it was hard for people to get into Teddy's. And I went in with my cousin and I remember that night we were uh, on the dance floor and she's like, oh my gosh, it's Prince right there. And I went, what? And I looked over, but he had no bodyguards with him. He was just there on the dance floor with these two beautiful women with him. And they were just dancing. They had to have been like six feet tall. They were so tall. And he was there and we were, it was like this. We were right here. We like were just shoulder to shoulder. Yeah. And you look over and he just smiled and we're like, <laughs> no, my cousin was like, she's fanning out. Right. I mean, I am too. I'm like, it's Prince. Hello. This is like a huge deal. So we're on our way to the bathroom and there's this guy posted up against the wall and he says, Hey Erica. And she's like, Oh, hi Adam. And it's Adam Levine. Cause they're friends. But your and cousin I went, is oh. Adam Levine? Yeah, she knew. Yeah, in LA at the time. And he's like, hi, Erica. And she's like, hi, Adam. And they start talking. And he says, Erica, he's like, this, or she's like, this is my cousin, Loki. And I'm like, oh, nice to meet you. And she goes, what are you doing? He goes, oh, I'm here with Prince. Would you like to meet him? And Erica said, no, I can't. I'll fan what? out. <laughs> are you serious? We just told this story. When he passed away, you know, like a couple years ago, like we told the story. I said, how much do you regret that you did not go and talk to Prince and say hello to him till this day? Yes. We talk about it. I mean, big regret. <laughs> yeah, that was one. That was like a, I was, oh, that one I always play in my head. I thought we totally were dancing next to him and he asked you to go over and talk to his friend and you but said no. And you so, casually mentioned that your sister's friends with Adam Levine. I mean, how does she have all these celebrity friends? 
it was my cousin Erica. She knew a lot of people at the time. She had a friend, her one of her really good friends, they hung out a lot. And so they had they they were always out. They had they have wild stories. Cause I have stories of like going places with them and then we'll talk about it. It's so funny when we reminisce now. We're like, oh, do you remember da 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 or when we were at this place or the time you met so-and-so and you didn't know that that person was famous, that's usually her. She won't know that someone, she won't recognize who they were or are, and she'll just start talking to them. And it's everyone else that's like, hello, <laughs> you realize what's going on. And she's like, oh, okay, cool. It's oh, always no big deal. I guess yeah. that's better. Ignorance is bliss, honestly. A hundred percent. It's that kind yes. of stuff. Yeah. So tell me then, okay, so you do L.A., in your the pastry chef for eight years at the hottest restaurant i mean you're in the spot how do you say now i am changing my course and i'm going to make ice cream with history and yeah how, how do you how do you and then i want to talk about your flavors but how do you change course like that so what happened is i was at beso for two years and I had a really great upbringing in LA. And then all of a sudden I thought, I don't want to, I think I want, I talk about this a lot about Saturn returns. I think people that are in their late twenties, all of a sudden you start changing and you are like, do I like scrambled eggs? Maybe I don't like eggs. Like everything in your life kind of flips. And so you're trying to figure out who you are. It's kind of like your first not midlife, but early life crisis. Like you're trying to figure out what you want before you hit 30. Quarter life. So that happened. Yeah. So that was happening to me as quarter life crisis. And then I thought I need to get married. I want to have kids. <laughs> so a friend of mine who's now like a sister to me, uh, we worked at Besso together. She was a server. She's an amazing writer. And, uh, she said, I want you to meet my brother. And he was at the time, he was married. I was in a relationship. And then we both had family in Japan because he was in the military. And so we we're going to go visit our family. She's like, you and my brother should meet, you know, your uncle's in the Navy. He's in the uh, Air Force. It'd be great. Blah, blah, blah. So I think like a year went by or two, he ended up getting divorced. And then I was not with my boyfriend anymore. So she goes, I want you to, to talk. You just make sense. And so we started talking. Well, then Six months later, probably eight, we end up getting married. I end up moving to Okinawa, Japan. So I leave everyone in my, like my tribe in Los Angeles. And I have like an amazing tribe in Los Angeles. Left them, <laughs> moved to Japan for four years. I live in Okinawa, Japan for four years. Okay, please tell me about that experience. So that experience led me to be a mom. So he had this amazing, he has this amazing, uh, eight year old at the time who actually is 18 and is, is graduating this Friday. So that's been, I've helped to raise this magnificent human for the last decade. Aww. Um, I got Colden, his name's Colden. I got him out of it. And, uh, then I started private chefing because I was a military wife. I had never been a military wife before. I didn't know what that entailed. Like, you know, I didn't know anything about that. And just going from being single Angelino into <laughs> married, <laughs> I was like, I don't understand. So we did that for four years. He got out and then we moved back to the States. So we end up in Las Vegas. How? Of all places. And so we end up there for two years. And then I start this hand pie company there. And I was working. I had friends there. My best oldest friend lives there. And another really dear friend lived there. Um, and then he wanted to go home. He's from Portland, Tennessee, which is about 30 miles north of Nashville. Okay. And he wanted to go home. So we ended up back in Nashville. It'll be five years this year. 
so when we got here, the job I got, I went back into the kitchen, was at the Hutton Hotel yes. as their pastry chef, executive pastry chef. And so I was there. So it was kind of like getting back on the bicycle again and figuring out how to work this thing. And then I thought, why are we moving to Nashville? Like what's in Nashville? You know, cause I drove myself out here, uh, the three days from Vegas to here, I drove alone cause okay. I had, you know, the last bit of the house I took care of and came out. And then, um, I would end up leaving that job. And a friend of mine told me about, uh, this place called, um, Homestead Manor in Thompson station, which is owned by the A Marshall family who own the puckets. And, uh, they were looking for a baker. And I thought, well, I'm a pastry chef, not a baker. So I end up taking the job and they said, Hey, we're open a half weeks. And I said, okay. So I was only at that job for probably a week and they pulled me into the creamery and that's how it all started. So I was making ice cream in LA. So when I was working at Campanile and Grace, they taught me how to make ice cream. Culinary school taught me how to make ice cream, but being at the creamery was taking two quarts and making it into 20 gallons. Oh, totally okay. different situation. Wow. So, yeah. To be taught by the guy that put that put the, the service man of the machine. He taught me how to use the machine. So I basically was self-taught in a way I've had the experience of being a pastry chef and what it entails. But I mean, I had imposter syndrome forever. Cause I thought, I don't know what I'm doing. Imposter like, syndrome forever. I, like, I don't know what I'm doing right now. This could not work out. It took me probably six months to get the base correct. It was a long time. I would now wake up in the middle of the night, like, oh my gosh, I'm overcooking it. Or I added this, I have to take this out. Like, I mean, cause it's a science. And so I had to go in and start reading more and, you know, trying to figure things out, read people's recipes, you know, figure out how so-and-so did this that I had. Um, and we started out with our first, I think nine flavors. And when I look back at it, I'm like, Oh, it was so cute four years ago. How like it was. And it just evolved into what it is now. So my grandmother, my maternal grandmother is from Chattanooga. She was born and raised in Chattanooga. So I grew up with soul food. I grew up in, you know, black community. And so I know what she cooked but she didn't leave any recipes, which is what I talk about in the article. So I've been chasing this thing for so long, trying to fill this hole because I didn't have anything to look at or to have in my hands. So my more my Danish grandmother, is such a blessing because she has old recipes that I've been using. And the last time I saw her, I collected all of them. And I have them in a book. And so I just started doing research about what the history of this, like of Southern food is and what it means because it's a big thing. It's a big thing. Southern food is like its own world. It is. Southern food is massive. It's, I mean, that's why I love the church picnics. Cause it's like, how many versions of one thing can we have? <laughs> it's also these family version. So then I just started digging around more. I, when I drove out here, there's a podcast called gravy, the Southern food Alliance podcast. And they had featured the Jemima code book on there by Tony Tipton Martin. And I went, Oh my gosh, I didn't know that there has been 200 years worth of African-American cookbooks. Like I freaked out. Like I was like, how do I not know this? How did no one tell me this? So I remember getting book that December, it would change the course of my, you know, just my direction that I was that going really. Cause in the article it says you really started to focus in on like black culture and your black heritage. 
and making ice cream to reflect that. Is that when you really started to zero in on that? Yeah, a hundred percent because it took me, I'm a researcher by nature. So, and then for me, I wanted to collect the books myself. So I read her book and then I went in and for me, I'm like, oh, how can I find the oldest <laughs> of the bunch? Like that's immediately, I have to like dig in deep. And so I just slowly started over the last three or four years, just finding these books. And I had a limit. I said 20, if you can get to 20, you're doing really well, you know, but you don't just get the book. You go into the book and then you look at the book for what it is and you see what was put inside of it. And there's some really beautiful things. So from that point, then things started changing. Then I started digging deeper into just Southern customs. You know, that's what peanuts and Coke was. I didn't even know that that was a thing that like people put roasted peanuts inside of a Coca-Cola bottle. And I didn't drink know it. that. Why do they do that? I have no idea. I feel like it's that whole sweet and salty thing. I was like, what? I've never heard of this. You know, jam cake was a big one. I didn't realize, you know, what jam cake was and how it was made. Um, Coconut cake's a huge one, but I was looking for something really specific. Then I came across D's coconut pound cake, and I was like, yes, I win. I can make a pound cake. You know, so ambrosia salad's a big one. That's one of my favorite ones, actually. What's that? Ambrosia salad is basically, it's whipped cream. Uh, usually it's mandarin oranges are in it, strawberries, nuts, and shredded coconut, and it's served cold. <laughs> And marshmallows. Most people don't like it, but I think it's great. And so it's just these little traditions. But what really helped was last year, the Juneteenth flavor, because for me, I got to a point where if you don't want to read the history, then I want to feed you the history. Wow, that's awesome. So that's where it became a moment for me was this Juneteenth flavor is very important and this is the significance of it and this is why this flavor is in it and so it's funny I mean, last year it was like oh cool and then this year it had a very different take you know um Let's so about the flavors in, what you put into the juneteenth flavor and the difference that you noticed of the response from last year to this year so last year it's the same flavor uh raspberry was the base because we're in summertime and it's got that color but the hibiscus was a predominant flavor which was a tea that was had by the enslaved. So it, you know, and that comes from West Africa. So it was an important part of the hibiscus and making sure it was red. Red foods are very pertinent in the celebration and they represent the blood loss of people, you know, of this, you know, enslaved over this course of time, the millions of people that have lost their lives. And so the lime was just that extra, like, you know, let's round out this flavor. So it was important to have and embody these flavors and also have that color. So, I mean, when you're making something, I don't know what it's going to turn out to be. It could suck or it could not suck, you know, <laughs> going one or two ways, but it came out so beautiful and it was well received when I did it. Uh, both stores we had served in it at the time and people loved it. And then it was just giving them that little blurb, you know, like, okay, how do I condense all this history into this couple of sentences to get you to understand, you know, the Emancipation Proclamation happened, but these enslaved in Texas, you know, wouldn't be freed for two more years. Like, this is a whole thing. And Texas made it an actual holiday back in the 80s before anybody else did. So how do you, how do you get people to understand that? So people saw it. They loved it. You know, my friends, family loved it. Everyone was excited. And then it's gone, right? So then fast 
forward now, then my friend Louisa, who wrote the article, is like, this is an amazing story behind this, and we need it needs to be told. And so this year, I mean. Tell me about I, this year. This year was nuts. I mean, I did not. If you had told me three months ago that this, I would have been in an article <laughs> on Juneteenth about Juneteenth and about black history and ice cream, no way. So it was really beautiful to wake up. That I, I wept. I read it twice that morning. It was early. It was like 6.30, 6.45 in the morning. And I was reading it and I was just in tears because it's been so hard to articulate the nostalgia that I love so much and just how it invokes so much beauty from people. Nostalgia is not bad. It's actually really positive and it can be anything, a smell, you feel a fabric and it just kind of warms you at that moment, you know, and that's what I wanted to push through the ice cream this entire time. And so just to be able to articulate that and have that brought out and into this beautiful piece, my friend wrote, was, I mean, I couldn't have asked for more because then it was like, ah, yes, that's what I've been trying to say for so many years. So tell me some of the highlights that you loved the most in that article talking about Juneteenth. What do you want people to know? Like, what did you want? What was the point that you wanted to get across about Juneteenth and about your ice cream? Because it is such a, I would read the whole article, but it's long. It's such a beautiful article. Tell me what your, your message was. The message simply was that this has been you know, this is not new, but when I look back even 200 years ago, that the fact that I'm able to take from that history and pass the past and create something so beautiful currently is what I'm the most proud of. That this story still is told and passed through this legacy. And then here it is served in a dish or on a cone. And so it represents so much more than just the ice cream. It's a movement. It's a moment. And so that's what it is. And that's the power of food. Food is more than just, I open the refrigerator and I'm grabbing something else to eat. It's way deeper than that. So I think it's important too for America to realize black food history is just as important. And it plays a huge part in most of the things that we're eating, especially when you're down South. So for me this year, I, she embodied just how I felt about it. You know, I wasn't able to tell the story of Sarah Estelle, who I came across last year, who was this amazing free woman who owned an ice cream shop, a black female entrepreneur in 1840 in downtown Nashville, had an ice cream shop uh, for 20 years. And it's like how our stories parallel is just what makes it so magical, you know? So are some of the parallels. Just the fact that I'm here, she was here, we're both making this ice cream. And the coolest thing about it is that Parmesan ice cream was a big deal back then. <laughs> yeah, nice. So I was able to recreate it now. And wow. so, yeah, I made it kind of like cacio e pepe. I had a little pepper in it, but, you know, it was made and it was like, oh my gosh, I get to pay homage to this, you know, this legacy that. I did not know anything about until someone brought it to me. And her sign's downtown. I think it's right next to Woolworths. It's down there. So it's just been an interesting 
you know. I want to read, I want to read a post that you posted um, about your, yes. I think this is part of the article. It is. Um, and you're, it's, you're, you have a line called saturated ice cream. Mm-hmm. So it's your own ice cream line. Are you working within a, a company now or do you sell this independently? So I, uh, so I'm no longer with Hattie Jane's who I was with yeah. for almost four years as of March. And so I decided that, um, for a long time, I think even back in LA before any of it was legal to do, I thought, Oh, it'd be cool. If people put like THC in chocolate and you know, whatever, oh, and edibles yeah, basically THC in it, which is also healing. So it's like you're healing yourself while you're eating delicious ice cream. Exactly. And so I can't do dairy because I have Hashimoto's thyroiditis. So I don't do dairy. I don't do uh, gluten. I mean, in moderation, if I'm going to go somewhere, I'm like, okay, I get it. Mm -hmm. But it's, uh, I don't have a sweet tooth either. So it's easy for me to just, you know, your ice cream. Yeah, no. And I taste it. I'm just like, okay, we're good. And like, keep moving, you know? Uh, but back in the day, I kept thinking people love ice cream. And I thought, well, what happens when you're, you know, I thought about people that are, couldn't have dairy. I thought about people that were actually very sick, you know, in hospice. It's like, how do you administer drugs, but still have the nostalgia in the end that you can still have something you used to love so much, you know, Mm -hmm. all of these things came to mind, people that are sick, people that aren't sick. And I thought, okay, well, since we can't do it here, it's not legal in Tennessee, CBD would be the next thing. And so I thought, oh, we can put it in the ice cream. And we were making dairy-free for a long time. So I taught myself how to do the dairy-free thing and the sorbet thing throughout this time. And I love the flavors that I was making. I mean, anywhere from like lavender chocolate chip to, I mean, to coconut ash Oreo. I mean, we've had a huge line of non-dairies that were really popular. And then I thought, I could put CBD in it and you're not going to taste it, but you're going to get the results from it. So, and it's non-dairy. So we're going into this other path of wellness, you know? Um, And there's two, the target audiences are, you have the baby boomers who use it for pain and then you have the millennials who are using it for anxiety. So how do you bridge these two together? And I'm like, ah, everyone loves ice cream. So, yeah. What if AI could help your business deliver mission critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com consulting. IBM. Let's create. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. 
There's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. So here's a post that you wrote. You said, um, hello, everyone. Thank you for the outpouring of support. It's taken a few days to process. And you said, I'm I'm, I'm going to say your name wrong again. I'm sorry. You're such a beautiful name. Your full Lokalani name. Alabanza. I'm Lokalani Alabanza. She said, Lokalani is a flower of Maui. Alabanza is praised in Spanish. Love that. It's been a mouth. It's been a mouthful since childhood. So they call me Loke, for short. Loki. Loki for short. I love that. The past four years have been dedicated to the world of ice cream. It's been an amazing and challenging experience. It truly, it's truly unbelievable how much humans love ice cream. They love it. Throughout the past four years, I've managed to create over three hundred flavors. The inspiration can come from anywhere: a color, history, a thought, a smell, book, person, drive in the car. I have a deep fondness for nostalgia. I love that. I love that you put that into words because I feel that same way. Yeah. It's been the most potent ingredient that I use. Nostalgia and ice cream are a stunning combination. Food connects us all. Don't ever underestimate its power. That's such a great point. Like food can truly just change your whole day, your mood, bring you back anywhere based on a smell or a taste. Through ice cream, I started a journey into its history, stepping into a world that I didn't even realize existed. Names that have been forgotten, legacies that created the path that I would one day walk down. Was it coincidence or perfectly timed? That I would learn in the, in the name of Sarah Estelle, a black female entrepreneur who owned and operated an ice cream shop in down, saloon in downtown Nashville in 1840. With this new knowledge gained, it's brought me so much confidence. Recent changes in the past month have led me to venture out on my own and start the new project, Saturated Ice Cream. But I just think that is so amazing that you nailed it with nostalgia because that is the truth. Like if in a, put a name with a taste, with a smell and it takes you back or creates a feeling and experience that nothing else can. Yeah, it is. Yes. That is, it is the, it's the foundation for me. It has, you know, it's, everyone that knows me knows that. And even the way I live, it's the way, you know, I, I love walking antique malls. It's one of my things. I just, by myself, I love to just peruse through, touch things. You know? What is it about old special items and heritage that really gets you? I don't know. I've been thinking about this for a while because I, remember as a child what my grandmother had and I was in her china cabinet I was always so enthralled by these two little German figurines she had and it was always like oh they're so old also I was a voracious reader as a child like I it's all I did I would save all my little pennies up and buy books at the book fair like I'd fill out the paper so I was always in this very imaginative realm you know and she had a um, encyclopedia set so I was always reading about history and what it was. And so it wasn't until I would like to say when my mom married my dad, my stepdad, and his mom comes from this amazing legacy. And she, my father just has, I mean, things that date back to 18 something, 17. I, it's just, I mean, I'm fascinated by 
cloth people's names being stitched on something. I don't know. I've just had this deep fascination since I was a kid and it's grown more as an adult. You know, I went through a time where I just collected vintage pieces from the twenties and thirties and the sixties and then that stopped. And then I just started collecting the books without knowing that years later they would eventually become part of my story with telling, you know, talking about food. So uh, even in Vegas, there was this really amazing used bookstore. It was known, their used cookbook store. And oh, I would just be enamored by, this is from like 1910. This is from 18 whatever. Oh, this is, you know, this was a war book during, you know, World War II. Like just so and many beautiful you probably things. probably just can't help but wonder who was cooking out of it and who yeah. was holding that book and using those recipes and who wrote those recipes. Exactly. And the beauty is, the well-worn and loved ones have scribbling in it or the name or they cut out something in the newspaper because they wanted to try that recipe and it's a clipping and those are like, oh, you won the lottery when you find one of those that's just filled with them. And there's, I mean, I can't not leave somewhere without a book. It just, it's going to happen. And then it just comes home with me. And then and you kind of read it, go through it and come up with a recipe on your own. Yeah. Yeah. There was a, one recipe, I did a post about it. It was in a book that came out of the Jemima Code, and it's this really beautiful book. Um, and it's, it's called A Date with a Dish, I believe, uh, by Freda Knight. And I'm going through it because I was looking for some, it's like whatever sparks, you know, comes through. I was just flipping through it. And there was this one called Mammy Joe's Spice Cake. And I read it and it, that was book. I think that book came out in 1948, probably. So in 1948, Mammy Joe was already a hundred years old and she had given her verbal, you know, she, her recipe verbally. And she said that it, she made it on the plantation and everyone that came loved her cake and her kids loved it and her great, her uh, grandchildren loved it and her great grandchildren loved it. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is over 150 years old. Like, this is insane. This recipe, I have to make this recipe. And so I made it and it was beautiful. And then I put it in this ice cream because for me, no one would have known. I mean, Tony Tipton Martin put that book in the Jemima Code, but if you didn't know the book and you didn't go through the book, this recipe was there this whole time. And so knowing that it had that much history behind it, I mean, was I was giddy when I made it. I couldn't believe it. I was just so excited. I was like, this is so beautiful. And now this, this many years later, I'm standing in this kitchen making this recipe and ode to her. So those are the things that, you know. Tell me, I, I can just so tell how much roots mean to you. Talk to me about the importance of roots because they're, it's so deep in everything you do. They're what keep me grounded <laughs> to the earth. I mean, I am, I'm naturally just wanting, I'm very independent by nature. I want to do my own thing. I want to be my own person and, <laughs> and not tie down to anything. Uh, but they mean a lot because I grew up with my father's side. That is, has a lot. My father's side is Filipino, Mexican, and they came over, the Philippine side came over to Hawaii in the 1900s. So there's deep roots in the Hawaiian culture on my dad's side. And my dad lives in Maui to this day. He was born there when it was a territory in 58. 
my grandmother, his mom is buried there. We have a lot of history there. And then there's a lot of history in um, the Bay Area. Well, then my mom's family, our family, my grandmother came from Chattanooga. My grandfather came from Detroit. They met in California. We have our family, you know, which is in the Bay Area. And then my mom married my stepdad. And then I had this European Scandinavian thing. So I have had this really interesting upbringing. And so I've taken from all of that. And it's those roots have just been part of my growth as to who I am as a person now. And it's like the wildest story when I tell people like, oh, well, I grew up with this influence and then this one and then this one and then then you get me. So it's just, <laughs> it's so just it, part of it. I would love to hear your thoughts. I've been interviewing women in general, but specifically right now, it's very important to me to interview incredible black women because I feel like there's such a movement happening in the world. And we are so many people who are thought they were just like non-racist and, you know, just not at all engaged in what, for me, like I, I always just consider myself non-racist. Like that was never even on the table, never even a thought, but now like this, the black lives matter movement is happening right now in such a amazing large way that like, I feel like myself included and so many people's eyes are just being open to yeah. the changes that need to happen. So you're, I feel like you are impacting not just with your voice, but with your food. Tell me what your take is on this movement and what your hope is for what's, what can happen. Uh, this movement is, you know, we've had a, we've been in a racial epidemic for a very long time. Uh, but it wasn't until certain events took place that kind of pushed or just ripped the ground, you know, or the rug from beneath people, you know, from underneath people. So it's been an interesting thing just for me personally. It's been a lot of despair, you know, it's for me, it's been despair because you have to, mm, I don't compartmentalize is the only word I can use to like put these feelings at times as to where do they go. And so in the beginning, it was a little overwhelming because I thought, whoa, there's so much happening. There's so many people at one time talking. It's a lot. You know, you go on social media and I was like, I can't. It's, so I, it's just process. Because it was a lot to process. Yeah. And, you know, there's black trauma is very real and it's very genetic and it goes throughout generations. And so trauma has been for hundreds of years passed through. And so every time you watch a video, it just reignites something and you have to work through that trauma. And so it just took some downtime. So I had to talk to very close friends and family about how I was feeling. And then there would be times where I had nothing to say for days because I was processing. And I kept thinking, I don't have anything poignant to say. I'm not a writer. I'm not a musician. I'm not a poet. I've, my art form is not, you know, I don't have a canvas. It's this food. And so it would take a few weeks for me to realize, oh, that's my voice is this ice cream, this thing, this vessel that I've taught myself to make. I've honed the skills to make it. Hundreds of people have had it, maybe thousands. This is where my voice can be. This is where I hold this tiny, tiny little light in all of this darkness that we have going on right now. And so then when I finally came to terms with that, then it meant 
it meant more actually to me than it had before because I realized the importance of we go back and ask about Juneteenth. That was that loop around as to why that I had to make this flavor and make sure people understood what this was. Or when I talk about Sarah Estelle or when I talk about these books, you know, by black authors, just what they mean and how important they are because we need to know the history and we have to look at the past to start repairing things. And food history, especially black food history, is so important. It is what will help heal and help shape the future. So there's times where, you know, I always have hope that things are going to get better. I really feel that this next generation has proved that they're willing to do work, you know, because yeah. they want a different world to live in. But also there's days where I'm like, I don't know what's going to happen, you know, because there's momentum and then there's no momentum, but being black in America and especially female, there's no choice, but to keep moving forward, you know, but this is that time. And I think I said it in the article was that this is the time to create a lot of beauty and joy amidst all of this pain. And that's what we're going to put out into the world is more beauty, more black beauty, more black joy. Like this is, that's, what's amazing. This is the stuff that's going to happen. And so, um, no, it's been an interesting, it has been, I don't even have a word most of the time. It's just a feeling, but the ice cream has helped and launching this business during this time has been <laughs> really wild. And overwhelming, but in a good way. I mean, people have shown so much love and support and I could not, I mean, it makes me emotional when I think about it. I didn't, who would have thought, you know, but everything was lined up to where it was supposed to be. So I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be right now. I think as we all are, we're exactly where we're supposed to be. So I agree with that. Tell me what you made, you brought up such an interesting point and I would love to have you dive deeper into this. What is it like being a black female in America? For me, it's, you know, I, everybody has a different journey. You know, I grew up in a biracial family. My mom is black. My stepdad is white and my siblings are mixed and I've always been the darkest, you know, so I've had a different experience, but a lot of naivety. I think in that experience as well, you know, a lot of it when you're younger, you don't realize what people have said or what they've done or, you know, Do you until later in your family. Like, cause you said you're the darkest in your family. I hadn't even thought about that. Does that play a part into your psyche growing up or did you not? Um, it did growing up with kids. Definitely. You know, I think outside of the household, cause in the household it doesn't matter, you know, we're all the same. So when you look at your family and you have I'm the eldest of five. So there's three boys and a girl, oh, my sister at the end. And when you go out into the world, you're like, wait, everyone's family look like, you know, they look like our family. And then you go out and you're like, oh, wait a minute. Nobody looks like us. <laughs> and so, I mean, my sister came out with like strawberry blonde hair and blue eyes. And I'm, you know, it was, I, it was harder for people to accept it. I think than we already knew this was our family. Everyone was very lovely to us when we grew up in Oregon. I think we had more problems in central California, actually. But as time went, you know, I've always, I had always been, if not the only black student in school. So middle school and high school, that's how it was spent. So it was just my normal, 
you know. What is that? What was that like as your as your normal? Was it fine? It was. Did it? It was for me. It was fine. Everyone was always really great. But then you'd have the you'd have the moments where you know I used to have really long braids, and then people would say, "Oh my gosh, can I touch your hair? Or is that all yours?" You know, just people becoming a little invasive. But you're just. I was always just very sweet and kind, like okay, when knowing it's like, no, no one touches your hair. You don't have to allow that to happen, you know? Yeah. Or I had a few incidences with a friend. We went swimming once at her sister's house. Um, and her, uh, if I, I, I hope to this day, her sister's probably out there, like in the movement protesting because her sister was so awesome when I was young. They were newly married and we went swimming in the pool and the landlords the next morning, they had drained the pool and oh. they wouldn't, tell me because she was so furious and she just said I have to get you home I'm so upset she was in tears she was she was beside herself and I was trying to figure out like what's going on and then that was an incident so there was not a lot but there were moments to bring it back down you know to earth like oh these people aren't comfortable with who I am so um no I'd graduate I didn't have any when I remember traveled to Europe and lived in Europe you know, it was, I remember going to Poland once though. It was the funniest thing because my friend said, he goes, they only see black people on TV. And so everyone would just want to talk or like, it was, they'd line up when I was putting a shoe on in the store and I'm like, hi. Like, and everyone was always very lovely, but, um, no, I've had incidences with friends and that's, I think what's taught everybody is you probably didn't know what you were saying was inappropriate or, you know, incorrect it's not until it's pointed out. And then when you start thinking back on times and moments and then you go, Oh my gosh, I didn't stand up for this or I didn't say something about this. Um, yeah. I mean, I even had an incident when I was married. I mean, I'm not married anymore. We've been divorced for the last three years, but it, in that moment where it was just, it, it's, I very rarely feel isolation and there's the moments that I have, but I, I come from a long line of, very strong black females and everything, all that prayer, all of that strength, women raising children single, you know, cooking meals, loving you, caring for you, taking care, you know, that is embodied in me and that has brought me to where I'm at now. And so I am thankful that I'm in this body because this is the body I wake up in and I have for the last 39 years. And so these are the hands and this is what I've been able to create. And even throughout all of it, it's still like, I want you to love this product and love this brand, but also, yes, I'm glad that you see me and you see that I'm black and female, but also I'd like you to support this because you want to, because it's an amazing thing we're doing and we're trying to make a difference. And so, um, yeah, I know I, um, it's been, I, it has been so overwhelming for me, because I feel and like a lot of, I feel like a lot of white people are saying, I'm so sorry that I'm like late to the movement. You know, like I didn't realize I needed to be doing more. And I feel like this overwhelming just sadness that I haven't like known more. And I, like you said, like you use your ice cream, like that's your way of being a part of the movement. And like, so for me, I was like, okay, well, where can I shine some light? And like, I have this podcast, like I want to start educating my listeners. I want to start talking about, you know, cause it's sometimes I, in the past, I felt super awkward about 
talking about anything racial because I don't want to say anything wrong. I don't want to be offensive. But now it's yeah. like, we just need to talk because once you start talking, all those barriers, like, especially when you're talking in love, I feel like it just opens up conversation. And it's like, I'm, we're all just trying to help to educate each other and to do better and to form one race instead of having everything so divided for what, for why, you know, but I feel like just having conversations has opened my eyes to the fact that I don't have to be af so afraid of not the fact that I didn't know so much. I can just start talking and learning and educating myself and just go for it. And that has been such a blessing in my life. And I'm so thankful to have women like you who will share your story and your heart and your dreams and your ideas of how, what the world has been and what your hopes are. And because that's, I just feel like we all disconnect and we put up, there's all these yeah. across life. There's all of these divides. And when you start talking about them and you start breaking them down, you realize they really don't need to be there. Yeah, it's true. I think too, no, and I, I, and I love what you said. I think too, the conversation needs to be had because you, if you do have friends that are, you have black friends when, when they're ready to talk, because I'm sure they're still like, they don't want to talk right now and it's okay. And you, and everyone has to be okay with, I don't feel like talking about this right now, but when it comes time to having conversations, because this is, this is opening up old wounds and it's healing, you know, new ones or creating new ones. It's healing old ones. It's rehashing recall you know it, there's a lot going on but at the end of the day you have to know the story because there's so many stories that we have kept as individuals to ourselves and so now is a time like oh no actually this is what happened to me when I was 10 or this is what happened to me when I was 15 or this happened to me last week I had to deal with this and so it's having that conversation and then having some sort of healing in it and then I think the other person in the conversation realizes oh, okay, I see you, I hear you, and where do we go from here? So that's been the biggest thing in it because it's mind-blowing what's been going on for so long because it was just so easy. The pandemic, I don't know what most people believe in or don't believe in. It's as if it was perfectly timed to happen when it happened because people had to stop and reassess what's going on in life, what's important, because I feel like the number one thing everyone realized is their family and friends and connection mean the most out of anything going on right now. Not money, not power, not any of these things. It is about connection and who you can see and who you can touch, right? So then this happens, this like we're in this Black Lives Matter movement. We're in, we're recognizing that there's this racial epidemic that has been plaguing our country for so long. And now it's like, people are like, oh, okay. And everyone can hear it because we've all been still and we've all been yes. isolated. And yes. I feel like you're so right. That allowed it to really become the forefront. It's no longer, I mean, of course the pandemic is still a huge concern. Everyone, yeah. Corona and all that. But like, because like you said, everyone was, isolated and focused on their family and friends like this became what we heard I feel like loud yeah. and clear for like the first time there wasn't all this other noise to like water it down oh yeah exactly and now and so it's just the first layer because this is just the tip of the iceberg it's a deep well it's very deep and I tell everyone the same thing is that 
I don't want to watch the videos anymore because it's too much. It's just too much. Like my mom will not watch them. I just don't want to do it. Um, and then I think about the Amy Cooper situation in the park and I think that's what scared, that's what scared America because that's what scared white America because it, then it became, Oh, that could be me or I might know this person or I do know this person or I'm related to this person. And why are we doing this? How is this happening? So that opened a whole floodgate of questions that wanted answers. And then when you break it down, it's like, okay, well, how do we do this together? It's not individual. It's how do we move together how as a whole? And no how, how do we? I feel that I really feel this is an individual thing because I get nervous that as much momentum was being felt for weeks that it's easy to get tired, right? And then to kind of take a step back and not want to fight as much. But, or I'm putting this platform here or I'm doing this. It's like, no, you have to keep doing the work. But also, like I told my friends, it's like eating food. If you overeat, you will get sick. Mm -hmm. So pace yourself because this is for the long haul. We're going for the next generation. So our parents, here we are, and then our kids have to go through this, which we hopefully hope they don't, you know? Mm -hmm. So no, you've got to like buckle in because we're on a ride and we're on it together. And you just, when you get tired, then rest, but come back refreshed and ready to keep fighting because it is systemic. Yeah. And it is, it can be broken down, but we have to do this together. So that's the thing that feels so overwhelming is the systemic part of it, that it is so deeply rooted in like school systems, government, um, even like Tony, our mutual friend, Tony Thomas, who was on my podcast last week, she said for the first time in her life, she had a fear because she was driving while black and she heard sirens going on behind her and she thought she was getting pulled over and she went through all the checklist of what she felt she needed to do if she was getting pulled over so she wouldn't be uh assumed to be guilty of anything who knows what but just anything you know yeah and I had never yeah. thought of that and so since it is such a big deal like how can people in their their local regular lives how can just a regular person who doesn't even know where to start like would it, where are the places to start? Obviously, denouncing racism anywhere. If someone has inappropriate humor or anything like that, that's, of course, like right off the bat, stand up for what's right. Beyond, yeah. how do we make a bigger change, though? I think still, it still lies within the human, within the individual, you know? It's one to start this, you know, I support this, but you really have to dig deep because you need to face your shadow. You need to face the things that make you uncomfortable because I still think now people are uncomfortable talking about it, you know, and Tony's an amazing human being. And it's like heartbreaking to know that she goes, it, that it is, it's just, it's a, uh, like what's going on, you know? So you still have to have that internal dialogue of, what am I really uncomfortable with? What am I willing to change? What am I willing not to change? What am I open to change right now? Because if you as an individual can't get to a place where you really fully fundamentally think that you're ready to fully be in the movement and to move forward, you're still going to lag. So I think it really still starts at home base, but also 
it's local level. I mean, this is, we're still in the South. It's not as liberal as the West Coast that I grew up with or on or in, I should say. Uh, very different vibe out West. <laughs> um, but here being in Davidson County, I really feel that local level has to change. And so people now really have to dedicate themselves to wanting to change the school systems here. I mean, it is heartbreaking when I hear people talk about Metro school and what they're not getting and then what the charter schools are getting and the other public schools, you know, it's heartbreaking. So how do you as an individual create a group? Everybody has power, right? Who are your friends that you know? Do you talk about this? Who do you know that who knows who? And then how do you get each other together and create a bigger voice for this county? I mean, look how everybody came together for the tornado. Yeah. Boom. It was like, let's make this happen. Mm -hmm. Well, that same inertia, that same movement is the same thing that we can do starting here in this place and trying to create change as a community. Like where we live. Yes, where we live. This is gradual. Like yeah. It has to happen where we live on this local level because that's what we can control is yeah. we know what happens where we live. And then as it, you know, of course, obviously, everyone needs to be registered to vote. I mean, Kentucky's a big, this is a big deal in Kentucky today and in New York and one other state. But it's like, these are important times. So I still think it starts internal and that takes work because changing takes the ego to recognize things. And we don't always want to recognize when we're wrong or what makes us uncomfortable or fearful, but this is the time to talk about it because everyone now is so you're naked. Everyone is very vulnerable right now. The pandemic created that. I'm sure everybody has like new phobias they didn't have three or six months ago. <laughs> um, and then now recognizing that there is a definite divide racially, and it has been for some time, is a really hard, it's a big pill for people to swallow. It's hard. It's hard. So, um, no, you just have to be honest with yourself in the beginning and then want to go out into the community. And if you have a voice or you have a platform, then it's now is the time. So I totally agree. And starting at the home, you're so right. Yeah. And instead of like, cause sometimes I'll view the, uh, not just this, but anything that I feel overwhelmed by that I want in my heart to be made right. I'm like, Oh my gosh, this is so huge. How will we ever do it? And you're so right. We all just have to go where we are, where we live, where we can impact and impact there. And if we all try to step up just a little bit and, and, move this forward just a little bit where we can, then that actually makes a big difference as a collective. Exactly. Because then it becomes a collective because you can't, you can't force anyone to do anything. That's not the part or the point. The point is to just how do we change as individuals? Because that's what was happening. Nobody wanted to see. It was so blinded. It was just, it just wasn't in your peripheral. You're like, I have tunnel vision. It doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. But now you have to start the home, especially if you have children. And I'm sure there have been many conversations with parents and grandparents and uncles and aunts. And I'm sure there's a lot of people that disagree. You know, there's a lot about all lives matter. Absolutely. All these lives matter. But currently we're in America and black America has not been looked at and said, your lives matter. Right. We're here for you. 
we want to support you. We don't, you know, there's you, you're amazing. We want to give you opportunity. We want you to succeed. We want to buy this thing. You know, that hasn't been opportunity. It's just been fighting to get there. And so now it's like, hey, we've been here for a while. <laughs> so it's that, um, no, I think a lot of it too, you know, and mirroring is really interesting because when you look at yourself and then you realize, oh my gosh, I have to change in order to be different anyways. So, um, no, I have faith that we can get there. It's just gonna, it's gonna take a lot of, it's gonna take time. It's gonna take time. So. I know I have faith too. I, I mean, like I even have just been now diving into black history so much. I cannot believe that schools and businesses and public places were segregated like within this century, like in the 1950s or 19, like 53 or something is when segregation ended. Like, I'm like, how is that so close to our, to us? Like how are it we? Is, so close yeah. to that? It's crazy. I had a friend text me this morning about Kentucky and I said to him, well, the voter, the voter rights act of 1965, 1965. Was that it? Yeah. Wasn't signed till 65. That's what the whole, that's why Selma, the movie and the walk across Selma and bloody Sunday, like those, they were all interwoven because couldn't vote. Wouldn't, we weren't allowed to vote in certain counties. Wasn't happening. People were risking their lives. It was dangerous. I mean, I can't even imagine. No, I can't because I, we live in a different world. There's still a lot of BS, you know, but I don't even know what it would be like to just, it's so it's on a level of it's too much, but it's, it has to be taught. That's why I tell this story when I took Colden. So my ex-husband is white, my stepson is white. And the we he's always loved uh mlk forever and he, called him, he used to call him martin luther the king when he was younger <laughs> <laughs> um so i wanted to take him we went to the civil rights museum in atlanta a couple years ago but i wanted to take him to the lorraine motel in uh memphis and so we went in february and he decided that he didn't want to register to vote he just turned 18 and i thought mm, okay he's like i'm not political. And I went, okay, cool. We're going to go on a little excursion together. So the three of us drive to Memphis and we wait in line forever. I think it was like presidency. It was a weekend, like a long weekend. And we were in line for probably an hour or two. We get in there and it's just the first one you walk into is this beautiful gallery of these photographs that haven't been released. And they're about uh, the 65 Voters Rights Act, but Voters Rights, Voter Rights Act. And there was this really profound picture of this uh, older black gentleman on his porch with a shotgun. And it said, he's waiting. He just cast his vote for the first time and he's waiting for the KKK. And so ah. it was, and so I was explaining this to him. I was like, you have to understand this after just what is your American constitutional right, <laughs> not a privilege, the right for you to do then you have to still protect yourself. And so we go through this gallery and then we go up into uh, the museum and it's really just, it's always just so amazing and profound. And uh, we stop because there's the famous, I have a dream speech and it's, 
be, it's a film and it's on this projection or it's being projected on a wall. And I'm watching this 18 year old watch this speech and he's weeping, you know, he's so overcome with emotion. And I thought, oh, like, this is so beautiful for him. So we're going through and he's reading about the voters and, you know, them signing, you know, up and, you know, being in line and we get to the end and we leave. And I finally was like, Hey, how do you feel? And he's, you know, it's like, I get it now. I understand what this means. And so it was even thinking about the civil rights museums, how important it is to go there. And then I, I ask everybody, well, how many of you been there? These are there for knowledge. And so that's why they were created was for us to go and to see what had happened in our past and to learn from it. And so how many people have taken advantage of that? You know, they haven't. Most people are like, ah, it's whatever. I don't need to go, but it's worth it because it's going to teach you the stuff that you weren't taught in school. So yeah, the more you dive into the cult, there's so many books and it's, it's hard. A lot of it's hard. It's a, it's a, it's painful because there was a suppression of people for so long, you know, it's more than just watching the help, you know, like, and domestic life was, I mean, women weren't looked at except for cleaning houses and taking care of other people's babies, you know? Yeah. Um, and then having to go home and do it at their own house. Mm -hmm. So, and that only ended, I mean, not that long ago. That's the thing that just has been so eye opening for me. And I've like, the bubble that I had lived in has popped because I'm like, I cannot believe this was so close. And it's like, almost like you want to just pretend like that is so far gone. We're so far past that. We live in the land of the free and every, everything's equal. And now I'm like, shoot, it is not, it is not. And we still have a long way to go. I'm not saying we haven't made strides, but we have so much farther to go and we all have to get on board with this. It's not just, African-Americans fight. It's all of our fight. And that's what I want all my listeners to like, know. like you can't just say I'm non-racist. You have to say I am in this too. And like going to help wherever I can. So the collective moves forward. Absolutely. I mean, there have been, there are beautiful books. I always recommend, uh, the underground railroad by Colston Whitehead. It's, it's a tough read. I mean, there were part times where I had to put the book down. It was just so unnerving, but it's beautiful and it's beautifully written and people should read these books because it talks about the past, but it also gives you a history an education on the history. But then you are like, okay, I can understand why we're, we're where we are now. So I think that's the divide is people aren't realizing, well, how did we get here? Well, we got here because of these things. And it's okay to look back on it and look, you know, and there's, you have to think about the indigenous of this country too. It goes, the well goes deeper. You know, the Chinese were here for 200 years. They got here 200 years ago. They helped build these railroads. And so people forget to talk about our history. Mm -hmm. And so it's easy when it's out of sight and out of mind that you don't have to pay attention to it. But when you have a situation like this, where too many souls are taken by unbelievable methods. It just doesn't make any more sense. Yeah, totally. When you just can't explain why did that happen, then it becomes, this has to stop because there was a point where people were hanging from trees and people were taking photographs of it 
and sending them out on postcards. That's part of this country's history, you know, and that's hard for people to stomach. And so it's what's different now than watching this video on social media, you know, it's no. And there's beauty, there's a silver lining. There's a silver lining through all this pain, through all this, What is it? you know, I think now it's this awakening because without the recognize without recognizing what's happened, you can't awaken yourself. And so now awakening really brings knowledge and it brings beauty because there's change in that. And so when we change, change is really painful, but it's got a beautiful ending to it. So no matter anytime you've been in a situation where you're like, this is very uncomfortable. I do not want to be here. I do not like this thing. And then as it expands, then you realize, oh, okay. So we as humanity have to start expanding and rewriting our own belief systems. I really think that we've had the same belief systems that have been coded into us for so long. And so now it's time to change that. You're so wise, beautiful, <laughs> talented, smart. Loki, I can't thank you enough for joining. Thank you. I always end my podcast with one question and it's leave your light. What, it is just kind of a wide open question. What do you want people to know? I want people to know that no matter what happens, it'll be good. How do you know that? I just know. I just feel that, and this can be with anything in your life. Like if you're going through something right now and it's not working out <clears throat> or you're scared or you're frustrated or you're angry, no matter what happens, it will be good. So you have to know no matter what in the end, it'll be good. And good could mean anything. It could mean fine. It could mean better, but just, it's a simple term to just, I always tell myself that in the face of anything that's uncomfortable, it's like, ah, okay, no matter what happens. I love that. It'll be good. My, yeah. My aunt told me that a while ago and it's, been like this little bookmark I have in my brain. So, yeah. Well, thank you. Someone needed to hear that. I don't know who. I, I love that. And I think that especially right now, that means a lot to hear that because sometimes it feels like how could things ever be good in the state of the world and everything feels so heavy and sad and scary, but it's like, it has to it be is. for a reason. And like you said, I don't know exactly how you said it. Sometimes all the bad stuff has to happen to wake people up to get you realizing what needs to change and what needs to expand in our own selves. So hopefully, like you said, there's, there's a reason for all of it. Yeah. And just, I mean, it's the mindfulness. We can't control the world. We can't control anything except for who we are as an individual. Mm -hmm. It's like, you can't even control the babies or the toddler. You know? yeah. It's like, you can only just be there to help them. So you only know what your household is, what your things are. But if you know you have space to be mindful and to change that, then it can start moving outward. And so it always just comes back to self. It always will come back to who we are as individuals because that's all we have at the end of the day. I just have myself at the end of all this. I only have who I am. You can only and control you. Exactly. So, and then whatever voice you have, make sure you're uplifting it, but make sure you're doing it in a way that will be positive and that will help somebody else. That's so. great advice. That's great advice. 
Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me and give me your Instagram handle. So anyone listening can go follow you because you post amazing things about ice cream with their stories. And you're so, it's such a, you have such a cool expression. So what's your handle? Uh, there's two. Yoki Yanni Fanza is uh, mine. It's Y-O-K-I-F-A-N-I-Z-A-N-A. F-A-N-Z-A. I don't know. You'll find it. Yoki Yanni Fanza. <laughs> and then the other one's uh, Saturated Ice Cream. So, well, I appreciate your time. I appreciate your heart and your story. And thank you so much for joining me. It was such a pleasure. Yes. No, thank you so much. It's been wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Have a great day. Diamonds Direct has done it again. This month only, get ready for an offer you can't resist. Buy a natural diamond engagement ring of one carat plus and receive a free natural one carat diamond tennis bracelet valued at $2,000. That's right, a stunning diamond tennis bracelet at no extra cost. Imagine giving her the ring of her dreams and her wedding gift all at once. So hurry into Diamonds Direct. Your chance to get a free tennis bracelet will not last long. Details at DiamondsDirect.com. You wouldn't expect to hear that we're America's third best city for beer like this one. Or home to vibes like this. And this. It might surprise you that we're top 10 for immersive art that's like. Whoa. And. Hmm. Not to mention, we have one of the top zoos in the country. So can a city with the country's best pro soccer team, ranking as a top culinary destination in the world, be in your own backyard? Yes, Columbus. Plan your summer at experiencecolumbus.com slash summer. During the Right Rug Flooring Hello Summer Sale, you'll find savings throughout the store, all backed by the right price guarantee, including carpet with a lifetime stain warranty, only $159 installed with pad. That's right, $159 includes expert installation as soon as tomorrow. Visit rightrug.com, R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com to find a showroom near you or schedule a free in-home shopping appointment. Say hello to summer and save. Right Rug Flooring, right here, right now.